Good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? All right. Well, I hope that you are in a warm place this morning, on this cold morning. Um, <clears throat> if you moved away from your parents' house after you finished high school, think about the first time that you came back after being away for an extended time. Maybe this was your first year of college. Maybe it was after a gap year. So you come back to your childhood home, the place that you grew up, and what kind of feelings do you have? Well, if you're like me, they're mixed feelings. On one hand, maybe you've missed certain things about being home. Maybe you've missed your mother's cooking or a family pet. On the other hand, maybe there are things you haven't missed about being home. Maybe your mother's cooking. Uh, returning home is disorienting for many young adults. On one hand, it's supposed to be a familiar place. It's your childhood home. But on the other hand, nothing ever remains the same. And you have changed as a person. You're beginning to see the world with new eyes. And you're becoming an adult. You're growing up. And along these lines, if you grew up in a church, what was it like visiting uh, that church for the first time since leaving home? Likely, you notice things about the church that you didn't before, uh, the way that the pastor and the leaders do things, the kinds of songs that people like to sing, the way people relate to each other. Uh, maybe some people treat you like you're still a kid, like you never left the place, but others might treat you differently. They might ask a lot of questions, some of them awkward and annoying, and some people might have expectations of you that they didn't have before. The gospel tells us that Jesus left Nazareth to be baptized by John in the Jordan, and from what we can gather, Jesus had lived in Nazareth for about 30 years. And after his baptism, he's taken into the wilderness by, where he's tempted by the devil, and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, he returns to Galilee and begins his ministry. And eventually, Jesus sets up shop in Capernaum, this is a town on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, about 11 o'clock, if the Sea of Galilee is the face of a clock. He teaches in the synagogue there. He calls his disciples. He performs signs and wonders. And then at some point, he goes back to, re to visit his hometown of Nazareth. And there must have been a big buzz when Jesus returns. Uh, news about him is making the rounds in Galilee. He's becoming a bit of a celebrity in the region. And maybe there was a little bit of small town pride. You know, some Nazarenes may have been thinking, one of our own is making the big time. And you would think this kind of homecoming would go well, that Jesus would be welcomed as a hometown hero. Let's just say it doesn't go too well. Um, the service at the local place of worship gets crazy in a hurry. It starts with the preacher killing the sermon, and then it ends up with the congregation trying to kill the preacher. Um, it is a bizarre homecoming. <clears throat> so this morning, I would like to focus my attention on the response of Nazareth, the people in the synagogue, to Jesus. And I would like us to consider what it says about us as people and what it says about how people respond to the good news of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. The fact is, we are complex, 
beings capable of a broad range of feelings and emotions. And sometimes these happen in the space of uh, a short amount of time. <clears throat> and we can see that here in Luke when Jesus is teaching at his home synagogue in Nazareth. Um, as we could see from the gospel reading, initially the response is very positive. Jesus reads this wonderful passage from Isaiah, a passage which lays out the contours of the kingdom and expectations are high. And as Jesus sits down, which is the position of a teacher, after he reads the scripture, the teacher sits down to teach. All eyes in the synagogue are fixed on him. What is he going to say? And then he tells them that, in fact, this prophecy is being fulfilled in their midst, in their hearing. And there's a remarkably positive response. In verse 22, it says that all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. <clears throat> but then some doubt seems to enter the room, some confusion. Wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's boy? And in the Matthew and Mark accounts of the story, the tone of this question is clearly negative. It's sort of like they're saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? Now, this seems like it would be a good opportunity for Jesus to reassure them. But instead, he speaks words of provocation. And then what starts out is admiration and wonder followed by curiosity and confusion gives way to anger. And we're not talking about irritation or annoyance. We're talking about passionate anger, rage, wrath. They drive Jesus out of the town violently, and they try to throw him off a cliff. This was an acceptable form of stoning. So instead of sto throwing stones at the person, you throw the person at the stones. You push them onto the rocks and let gravity do its work. <clears throat> Our Old Testament reading um, described how Jeremiah became a prophet, how he was called. And this great prophet of God had something very insightful to say about the human heart. He said that the human heart is dark and deceitful above all things, desperately sick and incurable. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Who can uncover its secrets. Well, in Luke, we see that there is someone who understands the human heart. And when Jesus is only 40 days old and presented at the temple for purification, Simeon tells Mary something about Jesus. He tells Mary that Jesus would reveal the secret thoughts of many hearts. And in Luke 4, Jesus unfolds the hearts of the synagogue crowd like a scroll, and this simply becomes too much for the people to take. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's little information about Nazareth in ancient sources. What we do know is that it was a small off-road settlement of several hundred people, and because archaeologists have found no paved streets or inscriptions or fine pottery, the assumption is that Nazareth was a poor village and basically a backwater. It appears that Jesus's hometown was a ho-dunk town. And during the time of Christ, of course, Israel was firmly under the heel of Rome, and the people of Nazareth would have felt this keenly. Uh, Sephorus, which was the administrative center of Rome in Galilee, is only about five miles away 
from Nazareth. And so when Jesus makes a startling claim that he is fulfilling the things that are prophesied in Isaiah, that he is bringing freedom to the oppressed, that must have struck a chord in the synagogue. And based on this claim, the hometown crowd wants Jesus to prove himself. But Jesus anticipates their desire. He says, speaking as if through their voice, what we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They wanted some messianic fireworks. And the response of Jesus is remarkable here. Instead of shoring up their hopes, he pours cold water on them. He tells them, first of all, that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then to illustrate this, he gives two examples from the remarkable ministries of Elijah and Elisha, the sort of signature prophets of ancient Israel. He tells them that Elijah could have gone to any widow in Israel, but he goes to none of them. Instead, he goes to a widow outside of Israel, a widow who lived in Sidon which is the same region where the notoriously wicked Jezebel was from. Elijah goes to that widow. And Elisha could have healed any leper in Israel. Instead, he healed Naaman, a Syrian. And Naaman wasn't just any Syrian. He was the head commander of a foreign army that often oppressed Israel. Now, neither the widow or the leper were passive. Both exercised faith and believed. And we see in the Mark account of this incident in Nazareth that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his hometown. So when Jesus speaks these words about Elijah and Elisha, um, surely the people in Nazareth do not like being compared to apostate Israel under Ahab. And like Jonah, they do not like the idea that God's grace is freely given to their enemies. This is a hard pill for God's chosen people to swallow. Jesus is essentially telling the people of his hometown that they're not going to get special treatment. In the kingdom that Isaiah foretold, there is no home field advantage. Or in the words of Allstate, everybody gets the Roger rate. Jesus has a mission that is much wider than his hometown or home region or home nation. He is the seed of Abraham who will bless all the nations. And the problem then that spoils this homecoming parade in Nazareth is the following. God's plan does not match the people's plan. Jesus, the hometown boy, is not necessarily their homeboy. Nazareth desperately desires a hometown hero but they don't want a hometown prophet. And so they reject their hometown Messiah. Now, before we dismiss the people of Nazareth as a bunch of faithless people, we must hold a mirror up to ourselves because like them, we often know what we want God to do. And we're not so good at bringing our desires in line with what God has in mind. And often God's grace is surprising, and it challenges our interests as people and our agendas. We're in the midst of Epiphany Tide, the season when we are invited to wonder at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the radiance and warmth of his light, but there's a shadow side here, too. Think about the way that the planet Earth sits in space. 
And you can see this especially in the pictures of the Earth that were taken from the moon. At any given time, nearly half of the Earth is in shadow. We call that night, and we have all kinds of associations with, with night and nighttime. But from the perspective of astronomy, nighttime happens when our part of the Earth is in the shadow of the brilliant light of the sun. On the day after Christmas, Travis preached on John 1, and we saw then that the word Jesus Christ was the light that shines into the darkness. But like our sun, when the Son of God shines into the darkness, it creates shadows. And we see in John 1 that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That is quite literally fulfilled in Luke 4. So here at the very beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, when the great light of God is dawning, we also begin to perceive something sinister, a shadow. And we can begin to make out its shape. It's cruciform. It's a Roman cross. So the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth prefigures the rejection of Jesus in Jerusalem. In Nazareth, they take Jesus outside of the city and try to kill him, but don't succeed. But in Jerusalem, they take Jesus outside the city and do kill him. So the passionate anger in Nazareth foreshadows the passion, the crucifixion. And yet Jesus's narrow escape from the cliff in Nazareth prefigures his glorious escape from the precipice of death in the resurrection. So the attempted murder of Jesus of Nazareth tells us that the cross does not represent a sudden shift of opinion about Jesus. From the inauguration of his ministry, even in his hometown, there is open hostility to him. And we're not talking about mild dislike. We're talking about murderous hatred. Jesus excites strong feelings. Many are dazzled by his words and deeds. He speaks with eloquence and authority. He feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. He even raises the dead. But Jesus, the fisher of men, does not use barbless hooks. And when there is a barb in his teaching, when he demands repentance and life change, when he suggests that undesirables can enter the kingdom, the soft palm branches of triumphal entry are exchanged for the rough timbers of the cross. So Jesus is a prophet rejected by the hometown crowd. But as Jesus himself points out, this is nothing new. The pattern is well established in the Old Testament. We perceive it through centuries of prophetic witness. We see that God's prophets do not preach to the choir. They do not flatter. They do not tickle ears. They don't modify God's word to meet market trends. Instead, they tend to speak the truth that people don't want to hear. And Jesus holds a mirror up to the people of his childhood community, and they don't like what they see. He speaks the truth that they don't want to hear and faces violent rejection. Remember that Luke writes this gospel and the book of Acts, and many people refer to this almost as one book, Luke-Acts. Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is a sequel to this gospel, and there are striking parallels that Luke sets up between the gospel and the book of Acts. 
And unlike the other evangelists, it's striking that Luke does not begin with a detailed description of Jesus's ministry at Capernaum, even though he references that. Instead, he begins in Nazareth, in the place where Jesus was raised. And so what we see here in Luke 4, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, in his first recorded sermon in Luke, is a pattern. It's a pattern for his ministry, and it's a pattern for the ministry of his apostles, especially Paul. Though some will hear, some believe, and some repent, many reject the message and shoot the messenger. Many good stories have an epilogue, so I'd like to include one here to close this sermon. There is no evidence that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth, but even though he is rejected by his hometown, he retained the name, and he's often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Pilate puts a mocking sign above Jesus's head on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What a joke. No king ever came from Nazareth, and no king was ever crucified. It is striking, though, that the chief priests, even in the midst of their perceived victory over Jesus, even when they have him nailed to the cross, don't find this joke funny, and they request that the wording be changed. They, they ask Pilate to change it to, he said he was the king of the Jews. And, of course, Pilate's response is, what I have written, I have written. This continues after the resurrection. On Easter morning, one of the angels at the empty tomb refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter does the same on the day of Pentecost. In fact, there is great power in that name. When Peter later encounters a lame man begging for money in the temple, he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. We see this, too, when Paul is on the road to Damascus. He hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <clears throat> Paul answers, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He doesn't say, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or I am Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. You would think that when Jesus is blinding Paul with his glorious radiance, he might use one of his more glorious names, his glorious titles. But here in Acts, when confronting Paul, our Lord says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. So even when Jesus is glorified, even when he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he holds on to the name of his hometown, the village that rejected him, the community that tried to throw him against the rocks. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in the same way that he retains the scars of his crucifixion, our Lord forever wears the badge of his humanity and humiliation, Jesus of Nazareth. That is the kind of Messiah, the kind of Lord that we worship and serve. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean, in its fullness over me. Amen.